0: From Kurtco Media. This is Cars
1: That Matter.
0: This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Please welcome my guest, John Craman. John, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks, Robert, man. Always a pleasure to come on and uh, talk cars and the current state of the collector car market. Pretty fascinating
0: topic. Well, it is. We've certainly got plenty to talk about. I'm not sure you need an introduction, but in case some of our audience doesn't know you, you're the well-known lead TV commentator and analyst from Mecham Auctions, the uh, giant among the collection car auction houses. So certainly from your televised events that are viewed by millions of car enthusiasts, you've got a pretty good bird's eye view from that broadcast box above the auction floor. Imagine you kind of see everything that's going on, not just at the auctions and the market itself. Robert, it's interesting that you say that because as a lifelong car guy, to
1: be able to sort of represent all the car guys out there when we're doing the television broadcast, you're right. It has given me a very unique and specific glimpse into not only the auction world and how the auction works, but also sort of what's really happening in the real world with collector cars in regard to values and demands and demographic changing you know, I still consider myself a student, even though uh, starting county year 2023, we'll be starting our 16th year of television. Uh, we're well, on.
0: Most marriages don't last that long, John. That's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, in fact, it's funny you mentioned I've been married to my wife, Christine, since 2014. So I've Aww. been on TV longer than I've been married to her. You're a but newlywed. <laughs> it, yeah. Anyway, Meekam Auctions will be starting our 36th year in business. Started all the way back in 1988. And what's really cool is I got hired as director of consignments back in 2006. And then in 2008, we went on television for the first time. And I'm the only one of the TV announcers during the Mecham broadcast that has been on virtually every second of every Mecham episode and we're talking several thousand hours of live, unscripted dialogue. There's no teleprompters, nobody telling us what to say. There's cars rolling in front of us, and we just sit back and talk cars. And let me just say as a final thought to that, it's, it really is my honor to, to feel like I'm representing all the car guys out there, wanting and gals, wanting to make sure that I'm doing everything I can within my power, my perception, my knowledge level to make sure that not only are we accurate, but we are relevant as well.
0: Well, gosh, that's quite a litany of achievements and uh, quite a history too. I mean, obviously you've seen everything from the bubble and crash of the collector car market back in 1989, 90, all the way through all the roller coaster ups and downs that we've seen since. I mean, who to have thunk to have that kind of historical perspective is obviously very valuable as you pull out your crystal ball and try and predict what the heck's going to happen in the future. I know that uh, all of us who watch the market have seen any number of peaks and valleys over the last couple of years, certainly a pandemic. I'm tired of hearing that word, but right. it certainly uh, kicked everybody in the backside collectors too. And it really kind of reimagined the market, what with enterprises like Bring a Trailer coming on strong. But clearly the volume of cars that goes across your block, especially at your Kiss Me auction, would put a magnifying glass on the fact that live auctions appear to be very much alive and vital and a hugely important part of the market. I guess with that in mind let's let, let me ask you how do how do you think collector car auctions themselves especially televised ones how do those really affect the market
1: well i think robert i think that they've had a direct impact on exposing folks that might not think about it, know how to do it, want to become a part of it. I think what it does is, is I think it educates people. It lets them see that it's okay where folks are, you know, our buyers and our sellers are folks just like them. And the fact that so many of of our customers, you see the same ones over and over again. Our thought being around for the long haul is we want to make sure that we take really good care of our customers, buyers and sellers, spectators as well at our auctions are welcome. But It's become such an experience, it's become such a part of dabbling in the collector car world that I think our exposure on television, on Motor Trend TV and Motor Trend Plus, in addition to the other automotive shows, the Build It shows, all have kind of worked together to elevate and educate folks on exactly kind of what it's all about. And I can just tell you from experience, uh, attending a lot of automotive events in the course of a year, speaking on behalf of Mecham Auctions and collector auctions in general, that The interest is at an all-time high. And, you know, I know we talk about this pandemic and we get tired of talking about it, but certainly since March of 2020, when we first started hearing about it and things changed, it has only heightened and boosted the desirability, the sales, the prices, the demand for collector vehicles of all genres, all price ranges, and that does not seem to be letting up. It's quite a phenomenon that I would have not predicted. I don't know about you as a market watcher, if you you would have predicted it, but man, we have just strapped ourselves in and been on one heck of a ride. That's for sure.
0: Well, I think you probably got that right. It it has been one heck of a ride, you know. From all indications, despite little uh, nip and tuck here and there, maybe with some market trends, things are definitely um, definitely continuing to ascend. Right. I, you know, I've I've watched your auctions over the years. In fact, I remember being in uh, up in Monterey one year when you guys sold one of the rare shelby daytona coupes that was an exciting auction i think it topped the 10 million dollar mark and boy that was really something you've had some record sales of some eight figure cars At the same time the other end of the spectrum uh, you're kind of the the guys that allow oh uh, maybe a first time uh, buyer or enthusiast to dip his or her toe into the market so you kind of play both ends of the spectrum but obviously, uh, all the all the multi million dollar cars attract attention. What are some of the ones that you could highlight over the over the years, or that might be coming up? Let's talk about those for a minute, and then and then get back to reality.
1: Right. You know, it's funny we handle over thirty thousand entries a year, but over the years there have been a few that have really just stayed with me. Some are high dollar cars, and some weren't as high dollar. As some of the other vehicles, but I have to say probably without any hesitation that the sale of the 68 mustang gt from the movie bullet the most valuable mustang the most best known mustang maybe of all time sure uh changing hands several years ago for almost 4 million dollars was absolutely the highlight working with the family of the car that had owned it literally since around 1970 up until just a couple of years ago they use the car as a daily driver. The mom drove the car to her job as a school teacher and, <laughs> and didn't really give it much of a second thought. And finally, all these years later, it becomes known that they want to sell it. Mecom gets involved and it brought just crazy price. And we had a frenzy of interest in it. And probably for a baby boomer like myself, that is one car that really sticks out. And the fact that I got to be involved in you know a little fashion part of the promotion of that car and then ultimately the sale of it covering it on television was a real highlight. We also sold a sold a motorcycle. It was a 59 Harley-Davidson Dual Glide. Uh, this is about six or seven years ago for around $300,000 that was gifted to the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis, brand spanking new by Harley-Davidson. Elvis got one and Jerry Lee <laughs> Lewis got one. And Jerry Lee got his first. And of course, now we've lost Jerry Lee Lewis recently, but That's right. having him roll the motorcycle up and we rolled a piano up on stage and Had him bang out a rendition of Great Balls of Fire was another, just another unbelievable magic Mika moment. There are a lot of others too, but I'd say those two really, Robert, kind of at the top of the heap. And I just do want to say that the average price of a car to Mika auction, and and it varies somewhat, but it kind of averages in the... $40,000 Forty to fifty thousand dollar range. So why the high dollar, high profile cars get a lot of attention, it's really the more affordable mid level entries that represent the core of what auction Auctions all about. And frankly, what the rest of the collector car world, when it comes to sheer volume, those are the cars that trade hands. They're relatively affordable. Uh, they change hands on a fairly regular basis, and the aftermarket courses on board apply virtually any part anymore for virtually all of the popular collector cars from, let's say, from the mid-50s through the early 70s. That represents the core of the years. You know, getting these things worked on, getting the parts and support and technical, the clubs are out there. It's really pretty easy to own one of these cars these days. It's a big
0: business. Well, it, it really is. And, and of course, you touched on the fact that not everybody's going to be in the market for an eight-figure garage queen, but a regular guy or gal might be uh, very much in a position to enjoy the pleasure of owning something like a classic Mustang. You touched on some of those points about the cars that, that have been desirable and will continue to be collected in the future. Give us a little glimpse of what some of those might be.
1: Well, you know, funny you ask that because I remember going back maybe around 20 years ago where the thought was as cars from the 50s and 60s, the thought out there in the collector car world is they're going to have a relatively short shelf life. The owners are graying out. You know, who's going to want a, you know, a 57 Chevy or a T-Bird or, you know, a 66 Chevelle SS 396 or fill in the blank. And me, here's what we've learned. Here's what we've learned. Here we are now, 2023. And those cars have never been more popular and more valuable. As the market transitions, it's not the baby boomers driving this market in the high percentage that they were even five or 10 years ago. I kind of have fun talking about what I refer to as the younger buyers in the market. And you might think, oh, really, are there 20 and 30 and maybe even 40-year-old guys and gals in this market? And the reality is, in my opinion... It's about 50 years old. That's an entry-level buyer, somebody that's got their business established or Mm -hmm. their career is on path. They've got a few extra dollars to kind of put into their passion and their interest, not really thinking about investment at all, but about what's going to make them happy and complete them. And that's where collector cars fit in. And man, I just have to tell you, it's amazing to see this market transition with fervor. We like to kind of call it the transition from the nostalgia buyer to the legacy buyer. And they definitely are out there. This market is transitioning. All indications, we've been watching it the past three, four years, even pre-pandemic, that there, as, as the baby boomers age out, there's this new generation of car enthusiasts. Once they mature a little bit, they start to identify what they like. And resto mods, modified vintage cars, continue to be a huge part of the direction that these new buyers are heading.
0: Well, you know, I've certainly been looking at those and uh, always marveled at the success of the Restomod, the market there. They had a little bit of a rocky start. I know they were uh, all gung-ho initially when that whole concept kind of came around, but then stalled a little bit as people wanted to focus more on originality. Of course, and I'm, and I'm a bit of an OCD stickler for originality, but then again, I don't drive some of my cars because of that. And that's precisely the reason people like resto mods, because guess what? You get the best of both worlds. You get the best of an old-time look and feel, but you get the driving dynamics of a contemporary car. And what a way to go. If you're not worried about that matching numbers or the build sheet, a resto mod can provide infinitely greater pleasure than a stock and pristine hundred point collector car. So it's interesting to see where that goes because it's also an opportunity for a builder or an owner to kind of put a few little personal touches into the mix and end up with a car that's very, very much their own. Yeah. And, you know, back
1: back when we first really started identifying this phenomenon, going back maybe to the early 2000s, there was some pushback from the, the old school folks. You'd mentioned, you know, your preferences for originality. And honestly and frankly, mine is too. But at the same time, I have an open mind. And what has happened, what we've seen happen is the bulk of the vintage cars that are being modified are not necessarily investment grade all original cars to begin with. They're projects, they're missing drivetrain. A lot of these cars are being actually built out of a lot of aftermarket parts. In fact, <laughs> right, you can build right now, you can build a Mustang Resto Mod, let's say a late 60s, mid to late 60s Mustang Resto Mod.
0: Without having any original Mustang parts, you get a Dynacord body and a repop engine and, and crate engine, and pretty soon you've, you're you good to go. You build that car with a credit card and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> Well said. Well, you know, you're talking about collectors and and maybe, you know, a circa 50-year-old prototypical guy or gal being your uh, entry-level collector. But let's talk about some of the the younger folks, too, and their tastes and sensibilities. You know, we all hear about Japanese cars and some of the what I would consider atrocities from the 80s and 90s now being top of mind for some of the younger set. How is the market adapting to some of these younger collectors? What do they want and what are you guys selling
1: them? Yeah. Let's go ahead and start with the Asian cars. You mentioned that first. And what I think we're learning right now, and we could probably include into this market, maybe the Nissan Z cars. I love those. Various models of Acura, including, yeah, me too, including from Acura, including the top of the line NSX Mm -hmm. and many others as well. These cars weren't sold in anywhere near the kind of quantities that the American vintage cars that we're dealing with now. So, that's going to be one more factor that's going to keep the price real high on these is the demand and the visibility for these cars Primarily beginning maybe with the 80s, going all the way through the 90s, well, even into the 2000s. You know, a 2000 model car right now is over 20 years old. Hard to believe.
0: It's funny you talk about that, John. I think about when I was growing up and, you know, as a kid in high school driving a 55 Chevy. I thought, man, you're driving an antique car. And, you know, well, I really wasn't that old. And I look back on some of the cars I bought and realize that uh, they were brand new once. And now they're senior citizens in the car world. And you're right, looking back on some of these cars, they uh, definitely uh, crewed some years and kind of nice to see them around. One of the reasons, I guess, is that Japanese cars are so well made as a rule of thumb that they, they have a tendency to last.
1: Yeah, and a point that I want to make just to confirm with, with anybody that might be thinking about one of these cars is, is it's the cars. Those cars were such a platform for modifications. You know, the Toyota Supra, another heavy player in this vintage Asian market as well. It's the unmodified cars, the cars that haven't been modified and haven't been abused that really get the bulk of the attention and the high prices from the collectors. And I don't know if there's ever going to be a point in time where there's going to be the parts and pieces necessary to maybe restore one of these cars, one of these heavily modified cars, which, again, was a pretty common uh, strategy for a lot of owners uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago to put these cars back to stock original condition. Uh, I don't know if the aftermarket will ever get on board like they have with the American cars and you know VW Beetles and and other vehicles, Chevy trucks and Ford trucks. Everything you need is available and I'm not sure that we're going to have that opportunity moving forward with the Asian vehicles which makes nice original documented cars just so desirable and so valuable. In addition to the fact that so many people look at and they identify these cars as something that they want to have, as they move forward, and and we've seen that. I mean, time and time again, you get a great car. It brings way more than anybody thought, including the consigner in most cases. So
0: that, that's uh, right. A guy sitting on a three hundred thousand dollar Toyota Supra might end up very, very pleasantly surprised when that rolls off the block. It is kind of amazing to see how some of these things have escalated in the market in terms of value and desirability. And, but your point's very well taken. It's hard to imagine parts and especially electric components and things like that for these cars being produced into the Future, given the fact that they were not manufactured in huge quantities initially,
1: yeah, and you know, kind of sticking in that same time frame, switching over to some other genre, some other types of cars that are really starting to heat up have been for a while. Would say the past five years or so would be the American performance cars from the eighties, seventies, eighties into the nineties. A couple that really stick out right now are the Fox Body Mustangs, and also. The second, third, and even fourth generation GMF bodies, the variants of the Pontiac Firebird and the Chevy Camaro, once again, nice, documented, lightly modified or no modifications are just absolutely going through the roof as the guys and gals that were in their teens and twenties and thirties, 20, 30 years ago when these cars were being produced, they're coming onto their own and they want to they have that car. And it's all about Robert, as you know, but just remind everybody It's all about supply and demand. If you just boil this whole conversation down to one simple ingredient, it really honestly is supply and demand. Right now, the demand is high. The supply is low. Guess what's going to happen to the pricing? And we're seeing it.
0: That's right. It's just like gasoline itself. And your points are well taken about the modifications. I mean, gosh, anybody, try to find a smog pump for a for a 429 Mustang. I mean, you know, it, that's a, that's the holy grail. And similarly, cars from the late 70s, 80s, early 90s, a lot of those suffered uh, attrition by way of the fact. The first thing guys did is uh, rip off all, you know, half the equipment, as, as we used to do in the 60s, put a set of Kregers on the next day. So finding an original car is a rarity. If you buy a car from a certain era of our uh, misspent past, you'll uh, get an 85 mile an hour speedometer into the bargain. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) there's always the reminder of how much things have changed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's funny how regulations over the years, they sort of ebbed and flows. We really began to see it, oh, really in the mid to late sixties with some kind of tack on smog goodies on some of the engines. That's right. By the time the early seventies rolled around, that got kicked into high gear. And then the safety issues, the big bumper, 73 really considered to be the pinnacle year. So you had, you know, the big bumpers, the clunky styling, lowered performance, cars were heavier as a result of the safety equipment. And they're a little bit under the radar screen right now. I'd have to say that bulk of the cars, bulk of the vintage cars we see once again, mid fifties to the early seventies represents, you know, the biggest part. It really started this whole collector car craze other than our grandparents and our great grandparents with their model T's and their model A's, which still have a little bit of a place in the collector car. world from a historical standpoint, but they're not front and center like they were, but, These cars, these cars of the past from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, they can be maintained, they can be driven, they can be brought back to life if they need work. Everything that we need to get these cars operational for either for show or for go or for both is there. And, you know, once again, the market's transitioning nicely. People were recognizing it was a special era, not only just for the cars and the technology, but, you know, pop culture and, you know, the music and fashion, everything, everything changed. Every year, everything was changing. Now, it seems like things, you know, style seems like it takes a longer time for style of different things to evolve, but not back in that time period. And, you know, the legacy buyer, the younger folks that weren't there, they kind of put this up on a real high level of being a very exciting, romantic era that they unfortunately weren't a part in. That's right. And an automobile and the music are two areas where they can they can live that era that's got a, a huge reputation for being good times.
0: Well, you know, John, I, I certainly wouldn't uh, disagree. And I'm at the risk of sounding like an old guy, which I am, I'd be inclined uh, to say that, you know, music and cars from the 60s, probably uh, things didn't get any better after that. But uh, they certainly got different. And I agree. There's a little something for every. Yes. You know, you're talking to a guy here who thinks it's 1968 was the end of the world because by then uh, all the cars in America had to have side reflectors on them. Yeah. That spoiled the look and the look and feel <laughs> of some of those clean lines. But Hey, you know, that was then and this and now and we've just got to move on. Okay. Right on. We'll take a quick break and be right back with Meekum's John Kramer.
1: Solar from Curto Media. NASC located the Athon two days ago. However, we have not established contact. What was that?
0: I do not detect any abnormalities. The
1: lights are getting brighter. Is the electricity overloading? Everything is nominal. What are the odds of survival for the Aethon crew? We won't speculate on those circumstances. I'm sure you can understand. Solar, a fully immersive sonic adventure with revolutionary sound from Dolby Atmos. Incoming message from Jamal. Accept, accept. Rich, it's coming!
0: Starring Academy Award winner Helen Hunt.
1: If we deviate from the plan even by an hour, we lose everything.
0: Tony Award winner Alan Cumming. I'm simply not willing
1: to risk the lives of any crew members for the sake of an experiment. Stephanie Beatrice. I'm going to save
0: you, Jamal. And Jonathan Bangs. One problem at a time, Ren. Solar. Shadows are darker this close to the sun. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. It sounds like you guys are moving on, too, by bringing so many of these more late model cars to market. You know, you mentioned the Fox Mustang. That's always been a sleeper and one of my favorites. I think it's a classic design and at once a very unloved box. But uh, in retrospect, actually, it's a pretty classy little ride. And boy, you can can really make some of those things go. Well, we've certainly talked about some individual cars. Let's talk about some general, I don't know, the philosophies or the ethos, you know, behind collecting. I'm going to put you on the spot. You think there are some absolute rules that a a collector should follow? And when I say collector, I don't mean a guy necessarily has five or 10 cars. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, you got two cars, you got a collection.
1: Yes, there's (laughs) one rule. And if you forget any other rules or thoughts, if if you just remember one, you're going to have an enjoyable run of collector cars. And that is buy and own what you love. It's not about investment. It's not about trying to be cool to your next door neighbor or one-up somebody. Not about that at all. I know from my perspective, I have a small and modest collection of cars, but they're carefully chosen to sort of complete who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of collectors, Robert, out there right now, their collector cars, that's their happy space. That's their escape. Whether you're, you know, I live in Northern Illinois. It's in middle of winter here. The weather is horrible, but you know what? I've got some really cool cars tucked away in a garage and all it takes is to turn the light on and a walk through there and maybe even a you know a few moments behind the seat of a car to absolutely transport me into my happy place full well knowing that spring is only 3 or 4 months away and and they will see the light of day at some point but a lot of people feel the same way this is not a not something i think a lot of people take casually buying one of these cars mm-hmm. obviously takes a financial commitment sure. you have to store it, you have to maintain it you have to insure it but as i said earlier you know the reality is it's doable. There's enough, this is big enough business now, there's enough people and folks and services in place to make this so doable. And the bottom line is, you know, there are heck of a lot worse places to put some discretionary income (laughs) than in in a collector car that's going to make you happy or a couple of collector cars. History has shown, and history does repeat itself, collector cars, well taken care of, when it comes time to sell, they do pretty well. We've seen that time and time and time again, to the point where I'm convinced of it.
0: I think I think you're right. There, uh, some things endure. Art and cultural artifacts are inclined to endure. But I like your advice. You know, the one rule to follow: if you if a guy loves a Borgward Isabella, God buy bless it. him and buy it. And uh, I'm sure somebody will be very thankful for that. Probably the seller, but it's definitely good advice. Does it ever pay to overpay?
1: I have got such a great story to really illustrate the point of this. We go back to maybe around 2015 or so. We sold a 1967 Shelby GT500 Mustang, but not just any one. I mean, those are pretty cool cars. First year of the big engine, the yeah. 428 that you get in a Shelby. But this one was a special one. Did you sell the, the,
0: the one with the 427?
1: We did. And that's another story. Well, but I interrupted. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. That's fine. But this car had a 427. Carroll Shelby built this car with a, actually a 427 out of a GT40 that actually raced at Le Mans back in the, back in the 60s. So anyway, put this engine and It was for Goodyear tire testing. Goodyear was coming out with a brand new line of tires, and they wanted to kind of do a special promotion. They got Carroll Shelby involved. It was a white wall tire of all things. Anyway, long story short, it was a successful promotion. The car was used in a lot of Goodyear advertising. The car set some speed records on this Goodyear tires and everything else. So anyway, car comes to auction. It was owned by a well-known collector in Illinois. Guy walks up to us on the auction block. It's at like a million one, a million two. It's not sold yet. Reserve is not off. And a guy walks up with flip-flops and shorts, and he walks right to the middle of the auction stage, This is all on television, fellow from Canada. And he said, can I bid on this car? And Frank Meekum, Dana Meekum, the two owners and, of the company that run our company, said, sure, you know, what do you want to do? And bottom line is the car sold for $1.2 million and everybody was happy. Well, that's not the end of the story, not even close. Four or five years later, the owner of the car up in Canada, he's a real estate developer, decides he's got to sell the car. He's got a real estate deal pending. He needs the money, free up the cash to move on. He reconsigns the car thinking that if he just gets what he paid for it, he will be happy. He'll be totally pleased. It hammered for $2 million. And you have never seen a guy more proud and happy jumping up and down. People had told him he overpaid for the car when he bought the car, but I think it silenced a lot of people. So long way to answer your question, but bottom line is it's very difficult to pay too much for the right Car. Now, determining what the right car is, everybody's going to have their own idea and perception and thoughts on that. But the bottom line is, these cars are just so important to so many people that it's going to be pretty hard to be upside down in any collector car, even at today's high prices. As we move forward, one or two years down the road, maybe not. But if you can hold a car for five years, More than likely, you're going to do okay when it comes time to sell. The odds and the history of the collector car market proves that out.
0: Well, that's great advice, especially if uh, they're maintained in top condition, because like fine wine, they're they're not making any more of a certain, you know, of a vintage. Once a vintage is gone, that's all they're ever going to make. Yep. Well, you've certainly talked about some important cars. What about so-called bargains? Everybody's probably always trying to corner you at a cocktail party and saying, hey, John, give me some inside intelligence on what I should be looking at. Of course, that's counter to your advice of buying what you love. But assuming somebody were out there looking for a bargain, maybe something they did love, what should they be looking at?
1: Robert, two vehicles always pop into my mind immediately Whenever I get asked that question, and you're right, it comes up a lot in conversations, and it's an easy answer. If you have always aspired you drove a 55 Chevy when you are in high school, well, you may or may not be surprised to hear that 55 Chevys in today's market are doing extremely well. Who would have thought? Obviously, convertibles at the top of the heap, you know, convertibles and nomads, and they go down to a, you know, two door hardtop and then down to two door post sedan. But guess what? Let's say your dream car is a 55 Chevy, and it should be. It's an important car, great style. Buy a four door. That's my (laughs) bargain tip. Buy a four door. One third to one fourth the price of a comparable convertible, less than half the price of a comparable two door, whether it be a hardtop or a post car. Buy a four-door. Station wagons now have gone up. There's a whole new click. I know it. It's so true. Yeah, but a four-door. And that could be true with really pretty much any car from the 50s and the 60s. You know, you want an SS396 from 66, let's just say, and you don't have the coin for that And a straight Malibu, same body style, still maybe out of your price range. Go out and seek a four-door. And you might hold it for a while and then to you, you know, financially able to kind of move up the food chain, or you might like having something a little bit different off the beaten path that you can get the whole family into easily and conveniently.
0: Isn't that exciting? Well, that's fantastic advice because, you know, kind of like Rodney Dangerfield, four doors usually don't get any respect. But let's face it, they're the same car. It's kind of like a dachshund. It's a dog. It's just a little longer. (laughs) Right. And and four doors are kind of like that. You know, the fact that uh, you see any car that old, it really becomes a standout in the in the automotive landscape. when You see it on the street or whatnot, and it's, it's pretty exciting to see them regardless of how many doors they have. So I'd yep. like your advice yep. about that. What about pre-war cars? Can we go back in time far enough to talk about those? I mean, what is happening to some of those poor old dinosaurs? Anybody buying them other than the Duesenbergs and Bugattis and, and the big stuff? Yeah, well,
1: you can almost kind of break down pre-war, which is pre-World War II cars. You kind of break them down into two categories, the big heavy classics You know, the big Duesenbergs, Cadillacs, Lincolns, Packards. Those have been surprisingly consistent and strong with value over the years. The kind of stuff that you'll see at Pebble Beach, as an example. I was out there this year for the very first time. Check that off my bucket list. It was pretty impressive. But sort of the the rank and file cars from, in particularly the 1930s, Man, I will tell you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pick one in particular, of course the Ford V8 came out in nineteen thirty two. We've had in the last year or two, we've had several major collections from some estates where, you know, the fellows that collected them for so many years, they passed away. And it's unbelievable, Robert the amount of interest, and the high prices that people are paying for pre-war Ford V8s. It was astonishing. I would say in many cases, cars brought a third to to a half again as much as our high estimates were to the families and the estates. It's just incredible that folks are looking back in an era they have no connection with but are identifying what's important in the realm of Americana and American Mm -hmm. history and automotive Mm -hmm. history, and they're picking and they're selecting certain cars from a bygone era as being sort of the it vehicle. So generally speaking, overall stock, original, whether they're restored or original, but to original spec, pre-war cars, they're strong. Where we've seen a little bit of a hesitation in the market is on those cars from that time period that have been hot rodded, which are a lot. Mm -hmm. The hot rods, especially a hot rod maybe that was done 70s, maybe through the 90s, that might indicate what era it was built in. Precisely fiberglass bodies a lot of the pastel paint all that they're a good value right now you got a budget of twenty twenty five thousand dollars guess what you can buy a pretty nice little street rod right now but if it's a period correct all steel built back in the day or built in the modern era but built to vintage specs guess what they're expensive people love them
0: that's where guys spend a million dollars plus on a riddler award winner right or the real old time original show up on the lawn at Pebble Beach. So, uh, yep. Obviously, we've talked about all kinds of stuff with four wheels. You alluded to motorcycles. You yeah. guys get involved in motorcycle sales too, don't you?
1: Yeah, we are the world's largest seller of vintage motorcycles at auction. We hold a event annually. It's always late January in Las Vegas uh, at the South Point Casino, and it is really. It's not only is it a huge motorcycle auction, six days, two thousand motorcycles. But it really is an opportunity for motorcycle enthusiasts, which I happen to be one, by the way, for everybody just to get together and hang out and just share in the sheer joy of owning motorcycles. Some of the benefits, I've got six motorcycles in my small little collection.
0: Well, we're going to talk about those in a minute for sure, but go ahead. They take up a lot less
1: space than yeah. a car does. You can put more motorcycles in the same space. But yeah, you know, Meekam Auctions, it's not all about cars. It's not all about motorcycles. We're also the world's largest vintage tractor auction company. It's called Gone Farm in a division. (laughs) And we also have a separate division called Mecham Auctions Road Art, which is our trademark term for anything memorabilia. It could be literally A to Z. All of those have become huge components of the success of Mecom Auctions, where we're just now getting our arms wrapped around exactly where we ended up from a dollar volume standpoint for our 2022 year, as that's being closed out now. We're going to end up with sales in the $800 million range of collectible vehicles, tractors, motorcycles, road art. Oh it's goodness. just incredible, the demand and the success that we've enjoyed. We've taken advantage of it, we've taken well, advantage of the market conditions. And we continue to bring staff on and, and put together world-class events and it's working.
0: Boy, as Everett Dirksen used to say, a million here, a million there pretty soon. You got a billion dollars. That is some well,
1: serious volume. Funny, funny that you say that because we're just now for the very first time ever, we're just now all of us starting to kind of look at down the road a little bit. If that $1 billion dollar, in total sales volume target is achievable. And I think we pretty much all of us believe that it is.
0: Well, that says a lot about the uh, faith that the collector public has in the concept and the the lifeblood of collecting. Sounds like it's going to be pretty good into the future. That's good news for 2023. Right on. John, a little about you before we close out. Obviously, uh, you're a car guy. What got you into the hobby and, and what's in your garage?
1: Yeah, you know, I was that lucky guy, Robert. I grew up in Southern California. My dad sold brand new Pontiacs at Harry Maher Pontiac on Lancashire Boulevard. By the way, anybody lives out in that area listening. If you ever drive by uh, Universal, BMW, and Mini, that's the site of the old Harry Maher oh, Pontiac I'll dealership that I grew up around. Yeah. And there's a there's a big Hollywood connection there as well. They supplied a lot of the cars to the movie and TV industry, including the Pontiacs that were using My Three Sons came out of that dealership. But even more <laughs> importantly, the 1960 blockbuster Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece, the, the famed used car scene at the beginning of the movie, was filmed right there at Harry Maher Pontiac. Ford-sponsored Alfred Hitchcock, so they replaced all the Pontiacs with Fords on the used car lot, but you can still see the Pontiac and Vauxhall signage oh, in the background. God. At that time, Pontiac dealers back in the late 50s, real early 60s, Pontiac was selling Vauxhalls as well as their captive import anyway. Oh, uh, so a lot of, that's where right. I grew up, all around that whole thing. And I, I, at a very early age, I hung around the dealership, memorized the brochures and the cars and remember it vividly and have never left my sheer joy of of cars along and i always wanted to have a handful of certain cars, i always wanted to have a gto that would make sense right mm-hmm. right, GTO. right right i always wanted to have a mustang found love. Them. i always wanted to have a corvette i always wanted to have a cadillac so i've got at least one of those in my modest collection my 64 gto i actually bought it in july of 1976 when i was wow. 19 wow. i still own that exact car today that
0: was a stretch
1: for a young kid I paid $1,350 for it in 1976, and it was a nice car. It was a nice car. It was like a kind of a high-quality driver. For $1,350, it's worth just a little bit more than that today, of course. And then (laughs) uh, I checked off my Mustang box in 2014. I ordered a brand-new Mustang GT with the Coyote 5-liter, 420 horsepower, 6-speed, retro look, but all modern. Yeah, Three Corvettes, a 72, a 2010, and a brand-new C8. That checks all those boxes. Only times three. You're
0: living large, John. I'd I take that trifecta all day long.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then a then a late model Cadillac SUV is my Cadillac, but that's what, that's my daily driver. Sure, sure. I'm a big Honda motorcycle fan. Oh, uh, scramblers from the early seventies. I've got a '71 450 scrambler and a '72 350 scrambler, and I've got several vintage Kawasaki's and a couple of late model Kawasaki's that it would be more of a daily driver road bike. So. And I love guitars, too. And the music from there, I play in a classic rock band, guitar and vocals. It all just kind of tying into that time period that I don't live in the past, but I like dipping my toe into it every once in a while.
0: That's fantastic. So you're really, you're the real deal. You walk the walk and you talk the talk. It's all fun. I love it. Well, these things are fun. And, you know, imagine being in a line of work where you're actually doing what you want to do. So many folks that just don't have that luxury. And, and maybe uh, apropos your remark about the cars kind of being the, the world, the quiet world, the, the special world where you can escape. I think that's what they afford so many yeah. people who buy them. It really is a way to sort of remove yourself from all the travails of, of our uh, current age and uh, going yeah. back in time. It's a wonderful thing. Works for me. Going forward in time, I guess uh, 2023 is going to get kicked off with your Me auction happening first part of January. So for so many people listening to the show, that'll be a history by the time they hear it. But what's coming up there that we should keep an eye out for?
1: Yeah, can you believe it? 12 days of auction, over 4,000 cars, almost 40 collections, 36 hours of live television coverage over six days on Motor Trend and Motor Trend Plus, the streaming end of it, as well as regular Motor Trend TV on cable. It is an extravaganza last year, twenty twenty. it Reset the Bar as the world's largest single event collector car auction at $217 million in sales. Mm -hmm. And we are fully expecting we will be smashing past that. And once again, we think the entire year, 16 auctions on the collector car schedule coming up for 2023. In strategic locations scattered around the country, we're usually not more than a couple, two, three hundred miles from any one particular region of the country, with the exception of the Northwest. Mm-hmm. The Northwest part of the country, uh, we serve it with our, with our Monterey auction and our Las Vegas collector car and also a separate motorcycle auction. But we make it convenient for the bulk of the people here in the U.S. that want to participate at a Mecham auction, buy, sell, spectate, doesn't matter. We obviously catch us on TV as we enter our 16th year in on television. And we are looking at nothing but calm winds and blue skies as we move into 2023 as, you know, the cars, Robert, you know, vehicles that we grew up with, have identified with, that we love and covet. This would include late model cars as well, the late model specialty performance cars that are, you know, starting to go away as well. This is the time to act. This is the time to buy. Nobody's getting any younger. These cars are getting tougher and tougher to find all the time. And You know, a final thought on that is is once again just remind everybody, there may very well be worse places to put some disposable income than something that's gonna give you a lot of enjoyment. I know it does for me.
0: That's absolutely true. I certainly second that emotion. I wish you all the best for twenty twenty three. I wish all the collectors a lot of good fortune as well, because if they take your advice and buy what they love, chances are they're gonna be pretty happy. Right on. John, thanks for your time today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Obviously, urge all of our listeners to get acquainted with some of your televised spectacles. I know that I've kicked back and enjoyed a few of them. Uh, Nothing better than watching an auction. Hey, uh, what else are you going to do? Watch daytime TV? No way. (laughs) For me, it's an awful lot of fun, and it's a great pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Sounds great, my friend. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, buddy.
0: Thanks to John Kramer for joining us on the show today. If you'd like to see more from John... Catch him on Motor Trend TV or follow him at Car Craman, K-R-A-M-A-N. This episode was produced, edited, and engineered by A.J. Mosley. I'm Robert Ross, and I hope you'll join me on the next episode of Cars That Matter.